lawyer of Justice Stewart's difficulty on the Supreme Court in dealing with the pornography problem. You all may recall Justice Stewart's uh, painful effort to define pornography, which wound up with his phrase that uh, I can't really tell you what it is, but I know it when I see it. Uh, the fact that it's difficult to define precisely what the issue is, which I suspect divides various people on this panel tonight, uh, makes the fact of the difference, not just on the panel, but in American life, no less uh, deeply felt, nor the feelings of the proponents on both sides or no particular side, no less uh, significant or important. And it is what brings us together tonight. One way to phrase it tonight, as Mr. Gilman has, is in terms of disinformation. Uh, the charge has been made in novels such as The Spike, which some of you may have read, in publications of groups uh, such as Accuracy in Media, from which Mr. Brownfeld, the second gentleman on my left, appears, and others that the American press, to some significant degree, uh, has been misled, <coughs> at least misled, uh, in its decision as to the publication of information, which was, so it is said, on the one hand untrue, uh, and on the other, extremely helpful to the Soviet Union. Some who have argued that this process of disinformation has occurred have said that it stemmed uh, directly uh, from the KGB or other Russian agencies. Others have claimed no more but no less than that the American press and other elements in American society have been misled and duped into their articulation of certain positions. Simultaneously and arising out of the same uh, nexus of facts, or what many think to be facts, others have come to the view that we are at or near or at least at some risk of approaching some kind of new era uh, of McCarthyism in the United States. They cite some of the very charges I've just uh, asserted to you. They cite articles, among others, such as the one in the New York Times Magazine, uh, not the one that I wrote for yesterday's issue, but one published a few weeks ago with respect to the Institute for Policy Studies. They cite some stories, including ones that I referred to a moment ago, and they look with special concern about the reestablishment under the new administration of a Senate subcommittee, the very title of which suggests to many some reason for concern, a, a charter to look into matters of security and terrorism. And there are those who believe that there is a different kind of risk, a kind of McCarthyism uh, of the left. Issues which are raised by this and, and other matters uh, which bring us together tonight thus include not, not only the charge of disinformation coming from the Russians, but McCarthyism of the left and of the right, and more general ones relating to the role of freedom of expression uh, in our society. To discuss these issues, uh, Penn has brought together a very distinguished panel of uh, individuals. I should say, but before I introduce them, that uh, a very serious effort was made by the Penn uh, individuals involved to uh, bring to this panel people of the widest variety of political views. Uh, there were a significant number of uh, refusals or declinations to attend. Uh, from uh, uh, various individuals, uh, more often than not, in this case, on the right, on the ground that the panel was slanted towards the left, uh, and uh, a rather strong letter, which I will read you if things 
do not go well this evening and, uh, from the uh, Council to the Senate Committee on Terrorism and Security explaining why he chose not to attend. But the panel that has been assembled is of a most distinguished nature and indeed, unfortunately, uh, does range across our political spectrum. Reading from my right to left, on my farthest right is my classmate from law school, not incidentally and of no particular interest to any of you, but a man of greater achievements than that, Victor Navasky, editor of The Nation, journalist, lawyer, author of Kennedy Justice, naming names, formerly a writer and editor for The New York Times. On my immediate right, Marcus Raskin, co-founder of the Institute for Policy Studies, lawyer, author of Being and Doing, The Politics of National Security, and a book coming out this fall called The Common Good. On my immediate left is Midge Dechter, the director of Committee for the Free World, formerly ed an editor of Commentary, Hudson Institute, Harper's, author of, among other works, Liberal Parents, Radical Children, New Chastity, and Other Arguments Against Women's Liberation. Immediately on Ms. Dexter's left is Alan Brownfield, a journalist, the winner of the Wall Street Journal Foundation Award. Mr. Brownfield has been a journalist with the Washington Evening Star, the Richmond Times-Dispatch, the Yale Review, Commonweal, and is formerly a staff member of the U.S. Senate Internal Security Subcommittee and author of that committee's report on the new left. Mr. Brownfield is, among other things, now the associate editor of the Accuracy in Media Report and is the, was the co-author of the final report of the Reagan transition team on the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission. On Mr. Brownfield's left, person I suspect more than most people, needs no introduction, Arthur Miller, our greatest living playwright. I will not read what Mr. Miller has written to you. It is enough to say that Mr. Miller is here. On Mr. Miller's left, Nat Hentoff, perhaps the nation's greatest proponent of First Amendment rights, writer for the Village Voice, steering committee for Reporters Committee on Freedom of the Press, a board member of the New York Civil Liberties Union, member of the Penn Freedom to Write Commission, and the author of the recent book, The First Freedom. The panelists have, uh, at least those that I've had a chance to speak to before we start tonight, uh, had the chance to uh, indicate to me that they prefer not to begin the way I had initially thought they would begin, which was uh, with uh, five-minute uh, statements saying something or other about uh, why we're here tonight. You didn't ask me. I didn't ask you, Ann, but proponent of the First Amendment as he is, I did not ask him. Um, most of them saying to me that either the statements are too short to be meaningful or the combination of statements uh, too long en masse uh, to hold your attention. So what I thought I would do is simply to start with two general questions, put it up to the panel as a whole, well, move. Wait, could, I, could I? Yeah. I really mean it. Because I think I know the letter you want to read. The what? The letter from the guy who didn't come. You mean Francis, Samuel Francis? Uh, he, he wrote a letter. I wasn't going to read oh, it. Because but. I think it's important to say that in front. That's what I was going to say in my less than five minutes. <coughs> I think it may, it may or may not present an underpinning to the evening. So unless it gets totally in the way of what you have in mind, I'd like to say it. Well, why don't I give you the chance to say it All right. uh, by passing it to you? No, no, I have it. 
All right. Um, I just wanted to say one, actually two things. Yeah, that's the limit. Uh, one is uh, I thought this would have happened by the time we had the symposium tonight, but I rather expect that it, it may well happen by the end of the summer, and we'll hear about it probably from Irving Crystal's column in the Wall Street Journal, uh, to the effect that, uh, you know, this is from experts on disinformation, to the effect that Timmerman was never tortured, that he was never even in prison, that throughout that time he was holed up in the Institute for Policy Studies, <laughs> while his book was written by Alexander Coburn, and then translated by Pat Darian. But that's not what I was going to say. Uh, the man who was invited to come tonight was Dr. Samuel Francis, who is currently legislative assistant to uh, that distinguished civil libertarian and member of the Senate Subcommittee on Security and Terrorism, Senator John East of North, Car North Carolina. Uh, Dr. Francis was the principal writer of the large section on the intelligence agencies for the Heritage Foundation report that went to the president, Ed Meese, and then to that other fellow. And the report, uh, well, you know what the report said. So by the standards, I think, of many, and maybe even most of the people here tonight, Samuel Francis is a bad guy. Yet uh, I think it's worth, that's why I wanted to preface the whole thing with this. The reason Dr. Francis didn't come, well, one reason was he thought the panel seemed heavily weighted against his point of view. Not an unreasonable expectation. Uh, the other th one, and the main reason, was that he didn't want to take the risk of being sued for defamation. Lawyers are expensive, and somehow Dr. Francis didn't feel he'd get the free legal services of the ACLU if he was sued. Now, why was he afraid of a libel suit? Not long before this invitation from Penn to him went out, it was reported in the New York Times and elsewhere that the Institute for Policy Studies had threatened Avon, a paperback publisher, with a heavy, heavy libel suit. If it printed the paper version of the spike, already mentioned, by uh, Arnold de Boschgrave and Robert Moss, without certain changes. The novel, as I guess every schoolchild knows by now, is considered uh, to indicate that the Institute for Policy Studies is some kind of clone of the Soviet Union. In his letter declining the pleasure of our company, Dr. Francis noted that this kind of bludgeoning of a publisher, and also writers, by threat of libel, quote, does seem to raise questions about the future of intellectual freedom and rights of expression. I have no desire to have a lawsuit launched against me, he said, because of some allegations that I might or might not make about the Institute of Policy Studies the night of the symposium." Unquote. Now, I, I wanted to, again, preface everything because I entirely agree with Dr. Francis. Libel and the threat of libel directly and often gravely violate the First Amendment. I'm playing up to Floyd's uh, introduction of me. And in this instance... Which I would not quite give in quite the same terms had <laughs> I known how you were going to start. <laughs> But in this instance, what if, what if the Heritage Foundation, the Heritage Foundation had been the more or less disguised subject of a novel by, let us say, Saul Urich, or a staff member of Mobilization for Survival, 
and the Heritage Foundation had, by threat of libel, successfully pressured the publishers to make certain changes. I expect there would have been a gashrai from all kinds of people, like Penn itself, like the ACLU, uh, and, and, and other people who were quite silent when uh, the pressure came down on Avon. So on behalf of Dr. Francis, and that's a totally presumed uh, stance I am taking, he didn't give me authorization to speak on his behalf, I did want to express the hope that there be no legal barriers or threats of legal barriers to any kind of information or so-called disinformation. Somehow, though, I doubt, and I could be wrong, that if a poll were taken of all members of this panel or of this audience, I doubt if that revolutionary notion would pass. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you, Nan. Our topic today is open-ended, and uh, <laughs> I would not want to suggest that, that other First Amendment issues, including one which, as Nat rightly says, are, are raised at least inferentially by what we're here tonight to talk about, uh, should not be talked about. What, what I would like to do, though, is to start out by posing to the panel in chief with Nat's uh, admonition in front of us that uh, you are to uh, promise, at least inferentially, not to sue any of us. Uh, two general questions and ask the panel to address them, and then we will take it from there. Uh, to the extent that we are here because there is a perception on the part of some people that there is a problem of disinformation, particularly, but not necessarily, disinformation uh, from the Russians addressed to the Americans, the American press, if anything. I would be interested if anybody has anything to say about that. What does that mean? Moreover, well, what the, what the spike has to say, for example. I didn't read that book. I just wondered what that word well, nor did we read Mr. Francis's letter, so I think there's a fair amount of mystification <laughs> going on already. Right. Well, I've always wanted to run a panel like this. I, I always... Midge? Here's the... I had a dream once that I would uh, <laughs> be called upon uh, to do this. There are two sides, at least, uh, to the, that which brings us together, and I'm sure you'll hear more uh, than two sides. There really are some people who say, Mr. Miller, uh, and, and in this novel, which I would not suggest, if, if you ask me, that you choose to spend your time on instead of writing yourself, but there is a, a strong, there is an argument made strongly that Americans, American journalists in particular, have been led or misled to publish information which is untrue, which is harmful to the security interests as perceived by the authors of the novel to the, uh, to the United States, and that indeed that comes from the Soviet Union itself. So I don't perceive that we're here just to talk about that because I have the sense that that will not find an awful lot of favor uh, on this uh, panel. But that is one jumping off point. The other jumping off point is what a lot of people uh, have perceived, either from the existence uh, of the newly reestablished uh, Senate Committee on Security and Terrorism and other events in American life to be some kind of resurgence or threat 
of resurgence uh, of McCarthyism. Most people that believe that believe it's from the right. Others believe it's from the left. And I would be very interested in just running through the panel and seeing if anybody believes there's any reality to any of the things uh, that I have said. Vekinvansky? I thought Floyd told me I was going to speak first. I thought if I sat here long enough, I could <laughs> do that. I uh, first would like to say a word about Nat's uh, introduction. It seems to me I personally uh, agree with you on the question of libel, although I've recently in uh, our magazine we ran a front page story about by Eve Pell on the subject, and then one of our uh, colleagues threatened someone else with a libel suit the next day. So uh, when, you, when you're attacked yourself, uh, uh, there tends to be a different view, but I, despite my agreement with you on the question, it seems to me uh, uh, both historically and tactically a great error to cite a letter from the Council for the committee whose heritage, if we see it as an inheritor of the Un-American Activities Committee and the Senate Internal Securities Committee, to make your point, not for the reason that you shouldn't defend your enemies, but for the reason that those committees were used for years to libel, slander, and defame people for their political views and to That's punish the best them. Person and to make as the long point. as you have a libel law in this country, they were using the cloak of immunity to get around that law. So that uh, that's just my so as long as you have a death penalty, you can execute people. And and that's you. We can so now. Uh, okay. uh, to respond to to the two questions put by the moderator, I would like to uh, do so by posing some other questions and respond along the way. Uh, first of all, it seems to me that the, the second question you asked, are we in for a resurgence of McCarthyism, uh, has an antecedent question, which was what caused the McCarthy, so-called McCarthyism that took place in the 50s? Uh, was there an internal security threat in the 1950s which justified uh, the response that goes under this label of McCarthyism? I would argue that there was not, and in the question period we could uh, get into the reason why I would argue there was not an internal security threat that uh, justified th what has come to be called McCarthyism. But I would say beyond that, that whether or not there was an in internal security threat in this country during the Cold War years, McCarthyism was an inappropriate and cruel response to that threat. And I would cite the, just uh, quickly the uh, investigations of the House Committee on Un-American Activities uh, to, to, as an example of the inappropriateness of that response. They called uh, scores of witnesses and before those committees and uh, asked them a series of questions. The key question was, are you now, or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And if you answered that question in the affirmative, the next question was, who else was a member with you? After some years of those kinds of uh, interrogations, the results of which were, if you refused to respond to the second question, you couldn't work in your chosen field, after some years of those interrogations, they called as a witness a member of the uh, Los Angeles Police Department, which was the area in which many of the investigations took place, and he testified that during the years that they were interrogating about, he had served as a double agent. He was the membership chairman of the Communist Party, as well as being in the LAPD. He was turning over the names every year to the LAPD, which was sharing the names 
with the FBI, which under the Freedom of Information Act we now discover was sharing the names with the House Committee on Un-American Activities. So that what we learned from our study of the 50s, uh, among other things, is that the hearings were a, a ritual that uh, had as their purpose not the gathering of information to combat the alleged internal security threat, but the stigmatization of people and the punishing of people for their beliefs. Uh, now, how could that happen in that period if there was no internal security threat, as, as I suggest there was not? Uh, I would just briefly say there was an international Cold War going on. There was an internal security establishment that exploited the international Cold War. The internal security establishment consisted of the FBI run by uh, J. Edgar Hoover, and uh, the various investigating committees, this, the uh, Subversive Activities Control Board, and a, and a group of other organizations and government agencies who were in the business of tracking down alleged subversives. Thirdly, in addition to the Cold War and the internal security establishment, there was what uh, this nativist impulse in this country, which periodically asserts itself and which tends to identify the radical, with the immoral, the unclean, with the alien. And uh, uh, the confluence of those three factors, it seemed to me, resulted in the portrayal of uh, uh, an equation which uh, said that to be a communist was, in effect, to be a spy, to be an espionage agent. The genius of the internal security apparatus was to expand that definition and to say to be a dissident, to be a, a, a dissenter, in some cases to be a liberal, was the equivalent of being a communist and therefore the equivalent of being a member of an international espionage organization. And that was the justification, sometimes spoken, sometimes unspoken, for taking away the rights of uh, all of these citizens who were tarred in that way. A fourth factor, I believe, in that period without which uh, this system could not have, have taken place was the collapse of, of those who are known uh, on the left as the Cold War liberals, both their organizations and, uh, in some cases, the uh, people themselves. Particularly, I believe that the, uh, the organizations that today stand for the best in the libertarian tradition, the American Civil Liberties Union, in that period played a role that was uh, uh, dubious at best, and they basically ended up uh, taking a position informally, if not formally, that they would not defend the rights of communists with the same vigor that they would defend the rights of other citizens. There were two classes of rights in that, in that case. So I then come to the next question, can it happen again? Uh, and there are some differences between then and now which suggest that it cannot or will not happen again in quite the same way. First of all, it seems to me much more difficult today in the world where you have China over here and the Soviet Union over there to present communism as the monolithic uh, international conspiracy that it was presented as in the 50s. Uh, secondly, the FBI today is not the same organization that it was under J. Edgar Hoover. Judge Webster is not J. Edgar Hoover. He has different ideas than J. Edgar Hoover, and, it's, and it is important not to underestimate Hoover's uh, role in that period. Thirdly, uh, Denton, who heads the Security and Terrorism Committee, is not Joe McCarthy, and he's not J. J. Parnell Thomas either, or any of the other characters. He's not as smart as they were. 
Uh, he, he is as reckless and irresponsible in some of his public actions already, but he's not them. And fourthly, I think, a, a, and probably the major real difference is that we have today the example of people like uh, our panelist Arthur Miller and others who resisted during that period and, and to some extent prevailed. And in that sense, they teach us how to act to prevent it from happening again. We have the counterexample of, of some who didn't resist and are in part of the culture in any event reviled for not resisting. Now, uh, if then there is no internal security threat and yet we have coming into place uh, a security apparatus because we have a president elected who was put in there by the so-called new right. We have a new committee on security and terrorism. We have a, a, an agenda put forward by uh, the Heritage Foundation, among others, that calls for the rollback of the Freedom of Information Act, the unleashing of the <laughs> intelligence agencies, uh, the uh, uh, passage of what is known as the Agents Identification Act, uh, and a whole set of other repressive legislation, which we can get into later. Uh, how does this new uh, internal security um, group justify its existence? Uh, it seems to me what has happened is that we, we have what Frank Donner uh, has called a terrorist shortage, a subversive shortage, uh, and that there, there have to be mechanisms to revive the specter of subversion. And some of these mechanisms have already been observed. The first is that we have a new vocabulary. The term communist has been replaced to some degree, not entirely, by the term terrorist. Uh, Lefevre, whose nomination was defeated in an event that I think is critical and will be critical and can be critical in the weeks and months ahead, uh, I think was defeated partly because he referred to his opposition as communist-inspired. Uh, uh, nevertheless, there is this new uh, specter of terrorism. We have to go along with the new vocabulary, I, what I think of as a new math. They, the uh, Central Intelligence Agency has announced that it is computing the number of terrorist acts with, uh, in a new way. And the new way of computing terrorist acts has increased the number of acts of terrorism, both in the world and the United States, by uh, hundreds of percentage points, which again has created the specter of terror around us. We also have uh, what I think of as a new jurisprudence. The new jurisprudence most recent manifestation was the pardon by President Reagan of the FBI agents Felton Miller uh, for their activities during Watergate. Uh, we also have a whole new set of organizational faces to replace the old Internal Security Committee and uh, some of the old private organizations that were uh, behind the, the uh, internal security terrorism that took place in the 50s. In addition to the Heritage Foundation, there is a new national security lobby. There are, there are uh, many other organizations that I, we can again get into later. I don't want to run down the, the list now. So we then come to the question, I come to the question, if, that's, if what I've said is, is uh, basically true, what can be done about it? Uh, well, I think first of all, while we can learn the lessons of the past, it's a mistake to be fooled by the analogies of the past. Uh, it's true that uh, uh, Denton is not McCarthy, and uh, n n nor is he J. Parnell Thomas, 
But there is another tradition that Mark Raskin was commenting on earlier that is the tradition of the Southern racist reactionary sitting atop the Security and Terrorism uh, Subcommittee is Senator Thurmond and all that he represents. Uh, I think that during the 50s what you found was, were many ex-communists who were willing to betray their former comrades on the grounds that they themselves no longer believed in the myths of communism. But what they uh, forgot in, in, that, uh, in those statements that they made before various investigating committees was that the principle at stake was not Stalinism versus Trotskyism. The principle at stake was the right of American citizens to the protection of the First Amendment to the Constitution. And it seems to me one of the things that we can do today is engage in, not tonight necessarily, but some First Amendment education. I believe that's, that's critical. Uh, I don't believe that Reagan is the problem. And I think there's something uh, that it's an illusion to think that because all of these activities have accompanied him to off office, that he is the, either the stimulator of them or the chief director of them. I do believe that when and if his economic program fails, there is going to be a great tendency, pressure, and impulse towards scapegoating. And many of those who are responsible for the, uh, for the uh, what happened during the 60s, the reforms of the 60s, the so-called new permissiveness of the 60s may be the victims of that kind of scapegoating. But I look not to Reagan, I look to state and local uh, organizations, I look to the forces that his election unleashed. I look to what's happening at local libraries, I look to what's happening on school boards, and it seems to me that uh, that's a place where uh, if one cares about the subject that's on the agenda tonight, that's what one uh, uh, that's a place where one can make a difference. Uh, finally, I would say that uh, you know, I, t I went to a conference uh, run by the Center on Constitutional Rights a, a couple of months ago, and Ann Braden said, if you want to stop a police state, uh, you defend its first victims. Uh, it seems to me that it is, whether or not we discuss the spike this evening, I'd prefer not to, it is uh, appropriate that we have here this evening on our panel, to my left, Mark Raskin, whose organization in the Institute for Policy Studies is one of the first victims of what could turn out to be a new form of repression, that the vocabulary of this victimage is the new vocabulary, it's the vocabulary of so-called disinformation, that the difference between the disinformation of the uh, 80s and the myths of the 50s is that the dis disinformation of the 80s is being consciously orchestrated in ways that I hope our panel can develop and that a final lesson of the 50s is that there come times when uh, resistance is identical with morality. We may be heading into such a time. Thank you. Marcus Raskin. First of all, I want to begin by saying that I'm here neither as a victim nor an executioner. And uh, I am here much more as a public scholar, which is uh, basically the work that the Institute for Policy Studies does. Can you hear me now? In this sense, the Institute for Policy Studies is committed to public scholarship. And what this has meant, how is this not? All right. Is this, is this known as Welcome to New York? Yes, speak up. 
Good. Is it all right now? All right, fine. So the Institute is committed to public scholarship, and in a way, without sounding uh, rhetoric, too rhetorical about it, what this has meant is that over the past 18 years, we have attempted to speak truth to power and to find ways of relating to the various movements uh, of uh, uh, civil rights, anti-war, etc., that have occurred over the last 18 years. And we have felt ourselves, in one way or another, uh, involved with uh, standing with people who struggled in that way. And I can say some more about that and will shortly. But let me t first take up the question of what disinformation is to me. First of all, it's a bothersome issue. And part of the reason must be that it's a terrible word. And in this sense, it is part of a new lexicon, uh, a new sort of language, which uh, uh, certainly Orwell would have uh, understood very well. And one does not usually hear the word unfact or disfact. And there's another word now for disinformation, which makes the discussion more clear as far as I'm concerned. And that is that it's another word for lying. And why is it so corrosive? Why is lying so destructive in politics and literature? After all, in Platonic terms, we've all come to accept the idea of golden lies for the good of the whole. And we think of literature, when we do think of it, we know that there's a series of truths which can be best stated through metaphor or even distortion. Indeed, the work of Doctorow, or perhaps others who are, of you who are here now, as well as other authors who use real characters in their novels uh, and have them say things as if they are real cannot be termed odious to us. They help to illuminate the uh, phenomenology of everyday life, of power and control in ways that help us comprehend reality in new ways. In another incarnation, I worked in the Kennedy White House. There was a saying about some of the people which was quite apt. It was that Professor X gets all the facts right and the truth wrong. The artist in this sense may get specific facts wrong, but the truth right. That is the truth which illuminates reality in a way that gets people to understand the twin elements of truth, that which can be measured and that which goes to the inner truth, the one which moves people forward to a greater understanding and which in fact has a characteristic about it that ennobles and emboldens the person further toward his or her own liberation. It is what makes the rightist novelist Solzhenitsyn whose political views I find appalling a, a great novelist. And it is what makes the, lo uh, the novels of disinformation, Moss and the Borschgraves, the, the Spike, Dreck. One seeks to find an inner truth. The other merely seeks sensation, knowing life is a series of connections and computer printout relationships without internal understanding either of relationships, feelings, or needs. To sum up, therefore, disinformation as a novel form, remains a system of lying. And it's one which, in fact, can most easily be used by uh, corporations, whether they're states, such as the United States, or the CIA, or the KGB, or the Soviet Union, or any state, or any specific corporation, to, in fact, be orchestrated in the world and to destroy the rep reputation and sensibilities of others. Now, when we come to the question of internal security. Uh, let me pick up on some things that Vic Novasky pointed out. 
An internal security threat occurs, in effect, when there's a conflict of values between various groups. So, in effect, a governmental perception is that there are certain people and groups that are doing things that others don't like being done. Over the last 20 years, there have been profound cultural political changes in American life, which indeed did frighten many people. So, for example, the civil rights movement frightened groups. The anti-war movement, which stopped or helped to stop the war in Indochina, frightened groups. The consumer movement frightened groups. The gay rights movement frightened groups. The women's liberation movement, women's rights group frightened groups, etc. And each one of those groups, in fact, led to a cultural transformation of the society. It began to put people into a situation where, in effect, they were subject actors of history, where they were not objects of others. And that, in a sense, began to frighten others who indeed had usually seen certain groups of people as either in the closet or passive or not, in effect, in a subject-actor consciousness situation in the world. Now then, after 20 years of transformation, which in effect have occurred in this country, comes a grouping of people who are resentful of this situation, this change. And they're resentful in some cases, one must not forget this, in some cases of felt needs that they themselves have gone through. In other cases, it's because it attacks their own class situation or their own position of dominance in the hierarchy. In both cases, uh, what we now see with regard to the Reagan administration is an attempt to roll back the transformations which, in effect, have occurred in the last 20 years in this country. And to the extent that that begins to happen, it, that, that to the extent people begin to say, no, we don't want that change in terms of civil rights. No, we don't want that change in terms of civil liberties. No, we don't want people or, uh, or men to go to uh, El Salvador. We don't want interventions, etc. all through the various sorts of movements which have occurred over this period. Then it will be perceived by the government itself that there is an internal security threat to the United States because of the political and policy differences which, in effect, will be felt by the various groups if, in fact, those groups act. Now, there are two meanings here of acting. In one sense, if people act enough, it becomes political. If they act in a tepid way, it means that, in effect, they are not powerful enough and they can, in fact, be victimized and put outside of the actual frame of reference of debate and of concern in the society itself. So one of the tasks, in my view, to keep a society plural, a democratic society plural, is to be sure that people understand that they must act at neither as victims nor executioners, but indeed they must act. And in that sense, they will not be put into being a, into a situation where a government itself will feel that it is powerful enough to close off certain kinds of people, certain groups, as being terrorists or communists or beyond the pale or whatever. There is a fact that is very important to understand. 
about the 20th century. To a very great extent, there has been an incredible amount of freedom. And Leo Szilard used to say about Americans that the reason that people could say anything they wanted in America is because they had, because they had been taught not to think freely. So that before you talk about freedom of speech, you must also understand the importance of what it means to think freely and not be afraid to say what it means, to say what it is that you have in your heart and in your mind. And in that sense, I would argue that we do not have to go through a period where, in effect, internal security will cause people to be quiet and to be fearful and to internalize the notion of McCarthyism. Now let me just say one word about the McCarthyism question. I don't happen to think that we are going through a period of McCarthyism. But I think that we should understand that there are profound problems that we have to face and understand. Uh, Senator Thurmond has been in the American political scene for the last 40 years in American life. His position, his views of reality have not changed very much. And indeed, the views of reality that he now holds and the views of reality that others uh, like him hold have become more or less a position of dominance or almost dominance in American life. If not dominance, then acceptance. And that fact, it seems to me, has to be dealt with directly, but can only be dealt with directly through groups of people being pre prepared to defend what it is that was won over this last 20 years and indeed to move to another stage. Finally, it seems to me that this is the way that we can best defend a First Amendment, best defend a democracy, and best uh, indeed move to a position where we're able to deal with what I would see as the three fundamental problems of American life. One is the continuation of the arms race, the fact of, of the national security state in which the United States itself now turns out between seven and ten nuclear weapons a day, in which the, uh, the defense budget itself will shoot up to something like $323 billion by fiscal year 1986. That's a fundamental problem. The second problem is indeed the problem of the economy, in which fewer and fewer people, in my view, uh, will find themselves being able to share in the, uh, uh, the resource and plenty of this country. And by the same token, it is necessary for us to begin raising the question of what economic democracy is in the society. And the third point is, what we mean indeed by individual and group dignity in this society. So in effect, we must internalize the notion of human rights, not only as we feel we must fight for it or be for it uh, in South Africa or in Argentina or in the Soviet Union, but we must be prepared to define what we mean by human rights state within the United States and how we're able to apply the Declaration of Human Rights here. I see that as the fundamental set of tasks that we must undertake. Now, indeed, if it's the case that those people who address those tasks, intellectually, politically, or however, in that, in that frame of reference, are seen as uh, enemies of the United States, then we are in a very, very bad situation in this country. I don't think that that's where we are. Thank you.
Mage Doctor. It's extremely hot, and if things go as planned by Penn, it will be a good deal hotter before the night is over, and so I wish to be brief. I would like to begin, however, by explaining to uh, Mr. Arthur Miller what is disinformation. We had a very elegant essay on the subject, but it's actually nothing quite so mysterious, and I will cite you one example to explain it. Uh, in a column in the Daily News on March 19, 1981, Stanley Carnow, who served during the Vietnam War as Newsweek's man covering Vietnam, published a column in which he said uh, that he had discovered that two major characters he had been acquainted with while he was in Vietnam had turned out to be, so, to be North Vietnamese agents. One of these was a good friend of his, who had been, in Carnot's words, a full-fledged correspondent for Time magazine in Saigon, which was an unusual position for a Vietnamese journalist. He also furnished the United States Embassy with inside information as a Vietnamese. He is now a senior official in the present Vietnam government and had been an agent of that government all along. That is disinformation. The material that he fed Carnau and the U.S. Embassy, uh, which purported to be information from the Vietnamese community of the South and was in fact planted information from the Vietnamese community of the North, was disinformation. I think it is a very simple concept I don't think it, it uh, need uh, involve us in any large literary theories. Uh, there's nothing mysterious about it. Uh, the only thing I would say further on this subject is that if either Stanley Carnow or Time Magazine found itself quite embarrassed by this or inclined to think that perhaps some of what he or they had published during the time might now be suspect. We have not heard a single word about it. Uh, but I really do want to talk about McCarthyism, uh, which is the subject that is throbbing beneath our considerations tonight anyway. Uh, we all know that grave injustices were done during the McCarthy period and by McCarthyism. Uh, we do not have to discuss this endlessly. We can stipulate things, I should think, by now. We also know, which I think terrorists in the world, I assure you. Uh, fortunately for the United States, there seem to be fewer here than there are in other places. We know who they are. They are people who shoot people's kneecaps off, who kidnap them for ransom, who blow up, uh, who uh, detonate bombs in offices, department stores, and kill innocent uh, people, by the way. That also is not so mysterious. And we know that there are such people in the world, whatever their provenience, we know that they have become a critical problem for the world. And we know that democratic societies do not know how to deal with them. Uh, without, uh, not yet anyway, and that it's, it's 
likely that democratic societies cannot deal with him truly effectively and remain democratic. And this is something that puts us all not uh, in a wonderful position, but in a terrible bind and in some amount of danger. So that seems to me. Uh, but I would like to say uh, one thing uh, that uh, has not been pointed out tonight about McCarthyism. And that is that one of its most harmful effects, aside from its effects on its victims, was its effect on American intellectual and cultural life. Uh, for 20 years, because of McCarthyism, because the campaign against communists and communist influences in this country was left to a sad clown and a handful of people who wouldn't have known a real communist if they had stumbled on one and who really cared less. Uh, because of that, for 20 years, it has been impossible to discuss the issue of communism in this country, to use the word communist in this country. Uh, 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 that term has been interdicted. To, have, to mention the word is instantly to be called McCarthyite and has been so for 20 years, as a consequence of which there is some mystical force around that no one can refer to. A uh, leading example of this, of course, is the case of Angela Davis, who ran for vice president of the United States on the Communist Party ticket, who was never referred to in the media or in the press as anything but a radical or a militant. She could be a communist candidate, and yet one could not refer to her as a communist. Uh, that is directly traceable to the lousy influence of McCarthyism on our life. Um, and uh, it was because, of course, that the job that ought to have been done within the intellectual community was left uh, for government agencies, congressional committees. That is why I am against investigations, uh, congressional investigations now, for the very same reason. Uh, another effect of McCarthyism was that one was not permitted in public, in the public prints, without bringing down the wrath of God on one's head, to make a distinction during the Vietnam days, the anti-war days, to make a distinction between passionate, even violent, legitimate opposition to one's country's policy and treason. And by treason, I mean something simple again. It's simple like this information. It has a very simple definition. It's always meant the same thing. It's meant making common cause with the enemies of one's country in wartime, which is a very different thing from opposing, even, even with violent street demonstrations, government policy. I believe we witnessed some treason during the Vietnam War, 
I believe we have the duty as writers and intellectuals for the sake of truth and intellectual decency to make that distinction so that we can begin to talk about things truthfully. But of course, I do, and precisely, uh, I am opposed to such uh, discussions and investigations going on in Congress because these are arguments and discussions that we as writers, journalists, and intellectuals ought to have among ourselves. I know that Nat Hentoff, who is one of the world's most entertaining men, got a terrific laugh from mentioning the name of Irving Kristol. You can often get a laugh in certain overheated audiences just by mentioning the name of Irving Kristol. And so I'm going to mention his name right now. And I'm going to quote him. I'm going to quote Irving Kristol. He says, writers and journalists and intellectuals, people like all of us, should be criticized by critics. Those are also people like us. This is an argument that we ought to be able to have freely among ourselves. The problem is, however, that as it has for the last 20 years, the term McCarthyism, then it referred to the old McCarthyism. Now I hear there is something called the new McCarthyism. The problem is that this term is hauled out to interdict all discussion of or criticism of the left. Now, you publish an article in which you quote copiously from and analyze, albeit with hostility, the political tendency of a writer or an organization or something uh, by quoting an analysis which used to be uh, an activity permissible in the literary and intellectual community. You do that now, and you are simply called a McCarthyite. What actually is McCarthyism? I think Vic Navasky gave a very, very good definition of it before. Libel, slander, and defame people. It's the use of smear and guilt by association. And there is smearing and slandering and guilt by association going on all around us these days, all around us these days, and almost all of it comes from the left. Now, I, when I talk about smearing and uh, guilt by association, I will even leave aside, I'm not even referring to the gutter journalism of which we have seen a good deal. Uh, in the last few years, uh, um, an example of which I would take to be the writings in the Village Voice of Mr. Alexander Coburn, who is our new Westbrook Pegler. There was once a, there was once a standard, a decent standard maintained in which uh, not only were the kinds of uh, journalistic techniques employed by this gentleman <coughs> frowned upon, but even hissing was frowned upon in a community of serious people who were conducting a serious discussion. 
That too went by the board some years ago, and I don't know what we'll do about it. That kind of uh, nasty, ugly journalism I'm talking about contributes to an atmosphere of intimidation, but that's not what I mean by McCarthyism. Uh, I mean, I can give a couple of examples. Uh, I'm afraid they are traceable to the publication of the very amiable gentleman sitting at this table. There is uh, the case of an article about Jean Kirkpatrick, ambassador to the United Nations, which appeared in this gentleman's publication. Now, the author of that article didn't like Jean Kirkpatrick. He didn't like anything she said, and he doesn't like anything she thinks, and that is perfectly all right. But uh, the way in which he indicated that she was to be considered a bad guy was the way in which the McCarthyism of the left generally functions, which is to associate someone or something at what, however distant, distant a remove with the CIA. The CIA is to the left what the Communist Party was to the right-wing McCarthyites, by all means. And it is, a, it is an, an absolute signal word. You only have to say it, like you only have to say Irving Kristol, and you get an instant response, and no further argument is needed. So in order to, for this gentleman to say that he didn't like Jean Kirkpatrick and that she's very bad and that she is to be opposed and that she has got very bad ideas, what he said is she is to be associated with her brother-in-law, a gentleman named Lyman Kirkpatrick, who was a CIA agent. Now, obviously, we all know what that means. She's a CIA dupe, and she's got a brother-in-law who's a CIA agent, uh, never mind that uh, this is going on in an age in which I believe uh, it is considered a high degree of sexism to hold a woman responsible or associate her with anything having to do with the man in her life, let alone her brother-in-law, uh, but he is her husband's brother. Nevertheless, this connection was made. Um, the fact of the matter is, of course, that Lyman Kirkpatrick is not Jean Kirkpatrick's brother-in-law. He never was her brother-in-law, and I'm not sure that she has ever even met him. But he certainly has nothing whatever to do with her. Uh, I, have not, I have yet to see. Uh, I saw an interesting exchange on this subject. In the pages of the Nation magazine, I have yet to see a genuine recantation uh, from that author. But in any case, the damage is done. Uh, Jean Kirkpatrick is associated with the CIA. And if her brother-in-law wasn't in the CIA, so what? And if he isn't her brother-in-law, so what? Uh, that's OK, because I'm a terrific person for having written this way, said the author, because I'm doing it for a good cause. Uh, I could cite another example of McCarthyism, uh, but Modesty Forbids, which happened also in the same publication, in which I, again, uh, you would think, if I were on the other side of the political spectrum, 
uh, that this would be protested as a terrible form of sexism, but of course, women who are conservative don't get the same uh, protections uh, as women who are not. Uh, and in this article, uh, I was associated uh, with something done by a man from whom I had been divorced for 27 years. As it happened, what this man had done was written the first formal comprehensive uh, attack on uh, the methods of Joseph R. McCarthy, but we'll leave that out of it. Um, uh, there was some notion of how he had been funded, but in any case, I had been divorced from him for 27 years. But nevertheless, that's okay. That's all part of the evidence uh, that uh, I, whatever I'm doing now is obviously very closely connected with the CIA. As a matter of fact, if the left wants to smear people, it could really do the, itself favor and find at least three other charges, because this is getting a little boring. And what's more, it's disprovable. Um, uh, and so it is the, the McCarthyism uh, that uh, is rampant as far as I see it, is McCarthyism of the left. Uh, and the, way to, for us to, the only way for us to stop it is simply to ignore its efforts at intimidation. Uh, and uh, that is what the efforts are. I think uh, it is time for us all to assert whichever side of the political spectrum we are on, a single standard of uh, decency and discourse, which does not mean that we may not criticize one another. And it certainly does not mean that those uh, treacherous acts, intellectual and moral acts against the United States that were committed in the late 1960s and 1970s are not to be spoken about. They will be spoken about. And uh, you had better hope that they are spoken about by people who really understand them and whose wish is to make the committers of those acts morally responsible for them rather than legally responsible for them. Thank you. I have had already a uh, request for a right of response, which I have denied uh, <laughs> in an effort to move through the panel. And we'll all have a chance to comment and respond uh, as, as, as we go along. <clears throat> Our next speaker is Alan Brownfeld. Yes. As I understand the subject before us, and before, before I say that, I should say that I don't know why Sam Francis and others didn't want to come to speak to this very friendly audience. <laughs> Uh, as, I, as I understand the question before us, it is, should the Senate Committee on Terrorism and Security be reconstituted? Is this committee a threat to freedom of speech or freedom of, of thought? And my answer to that question is, yes, it, it should be reconstituted, and no, it is not a threat. 
Now, the reason I say it should be reconstituted is that I believe there is a very real threat to our internal security at the present time. Needless to say, anyone who did not think there was a threat to our internal security would quite properly argue that no, the committee should not be reconstituted. Now, what is this threat which I perceive? Number one, within our society at the present time, there is a growth of extremist organizations of both the left and the right. In Greensboro, North Carolina, not very long ago, you remember a shootout which took place between a communist organization and an American Nazi organization. Shortly after that event, our internal security authorities, what few there may be after the guidelines which have been imposed upon the FBI and other groups have done their work, were asked, how many members does the Ku Klux Klan have? The answer was, we have no idea. We are no longer permitted to observe, investigate, or keep records of such a group. After the alleged assassin of President Reagan was arrested, and it was revealed that at one time he had been a member of the American Nazi Party, it was asked, how many members are there of the American Nazi Party? Are we keeping no tabs on people that might engage in violent actions, racist actions of this kind? And the answer was, no, we are no longer even looking into these questions. In fact, Stuart Knight, the chief of the Secret Service, said that there are now cities in the United States which the president is advised not to visit. The reason erosion of intelligence has reached the point at which the actions of demonstrators and potential terrorists cannot be predicted. So I think there is that kind of problem within our society. The rise of extremist groups, a dramatic increase in anti-Semitic incidents, in racist incidents, in Klan activity that we know nothing about because we are no longer in the business of concerning ourselves with extremist terrorist-prone groups within our country. This is one of the problems we face. The second problem we face is the rise of international terrorism and the Soviet Union's direct role in financing it. Now, it has been said by some that the Soviet Union is not behind international terrorism. Now, there's no doubt that various terrorist groups in various countries of the world have their own legitimate or illegitimate grievances and their own political agenda. The Palestine Liberation Organization is not a creature of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union did not create the PLO. 
the Palestinians have what they believe are legitimate grievances vis-a-vis -vis Israel. But the Palestine Liberation Organization could not operate as it does today were it not for the Soviet Union. Marilyn Berger of the Washington Post interviewed Zaidi Tertsi, the PLO representative in New York. He said to her, the Soviet Union and all the rest of the socialist countries, just like the rest of the world, they give us the full support, diplomatic, moral, educational, and also they open their military academies to our freedom fighters. Berger said, can you guess how many of your people have gone through military training in the Soviet Union? Tertsi said, well, I really don't know the numbers, but I do know that the availability is there. Later, Adnan Jaber, a PLO captured by the Israelis, testified. After serving in Lebanon with Fatah, Jaber said he boarded an Aeroflot airliner in Damascus on March 14, 1974, with 20 other guerrillas dressed in civilian clothes carrying forged passports. On his arrival, his group was taken by bus for Moscow Airport. They ended up at Lumumba University, were carefully trained in the Soviet Union. The Palestinian Liberation Organization, in turn, using funds from the Soviet Union and Libya, is busy training in South Yemen terrorists from the Italian Red Brigades, the Bader Meinhof Group in Germany, the Irish Republican Army. The connections are overwhelming and clear and provable. There are also American organizations which have been involved in this international terror network. So I think there, again, we have a real threat, the growth of extremist groups within our country, the growth of international terrorism financed and supported by the Soviet Union, which also finds its way into our country, as in the case of the Puerto Rican terrorist group, the FALN. And we're talking here not about ideas. I think this is a very important distinction which must be made. I am not in favor of any committee of the US Congress investigating people because of their opinions. We're not talking about opinions. You know, in the famous case before the Supreme Court concerning religious freedom, a Mormon came before the court and said, I believe that a man should be able to have as many wives as he would like to have. And the court said, you are right. In our country, a man can have as many wives, can believe that he should have as many wives as he wants, but he can have only one. Belief is one thing, actions are another. What this subcommittee on terrorism is concerned with is not beliefs, but actions. The actions of terrorists and the actions of individuals and organizations within our country that are involved with the support of terrorism. Now I'd like to turn briefly to the question of disinformation. Is there a threat with regard to disinformation? I think yes, there is. 
And I recognize, I recognize the problem involved in this area. When we talk about disinformation, we hold ourselves open to the possibility of accusing those with whom we disagree of, in fact, being agents of the enemy, dupes of the enemy, etc. Now, the fact that we can abuse and misuse our investigation into the subject of disinformation only means that we must be very careful indeed in its pursuit. But this is a real problem. The head of the KGB's disinformation directorate is quoted by Soviet defectors now in Western Europe as having told his agents in 1968 that our friends must always be encouraged to write or say precisely the opposite of our real objectives. Conflict between East and West is a permanent premise of Soviet thought until the final demise of capitalist power in the West. But this must consistently and constantly be dismissed and ridiculed as rightist Cold War thinking. A top-secret <coughs> manual entitled The Practice of Recruiting Americans in the USA and Third Countries, published by the first directorate of the KGB, listed in order of priority 12 categories of recruitment targets. The first was government personnel with access to classified information. The second, members of the media. In testimony in the Congress in February 1980, Ladislav Bittman, former deputy chief of the disinformation department of the Czechoslovak Intelligence Service, spoke of his efforts to influence media in the West. He reported that during my tenure in the operative sector, I was in regular confidential contact with a man who was director of a national television network in a West European country. The major objective behind this case was to recruit the man and use his managerial power for long-term propagandistic campaigns nobody would suspect originated in Eastern Europe. Bittman testified that if somebody had at this moment the magic key that would open the Soviet bloc intelligence safes and looked into the files of secret agents operating in Western countries, he would be surprised. A relatively high percentage of secret agents are journalists. A journalist operating in Great Britain, West Germany, or the US is a great asset to communist intelligence. He can be investigative, professionally curious. It is his job to get important, even highly sensitive information. This is particularly true in the US with its tradition of an aggressive adversary press. The communist bloc, he said, pays great attention to the foreign press. There are many journalists who are agents. There are important newspapers around the world penetrated by communist intelligence services. There are one or two journalists working for a particular paper who are agents and who receive from time to time instructions to publish this story or that story once or twice a year. There are newspapers in the West which are owned by communist intelligence services. The Czech service, for example, owns several newspapers in the Western bloc. This is Mr. Bittman's testimony. I am not here to tell you that 
any particular journalists or newspapers, in my knowledge, have ever been involved in disinformation. What I would argue is that the Soviet Union is deeply involved in a disinformation campaign and that it is a legitimate function of the Congress of the United States to investigate this. My view is that every society has a right to defend itself against enemies, foreign and domestic. This is a legitimate function of the Congress. We are not dealing here with ideas or opinions. We are dealing here with actions only. I believe that the reinstitution of this committee is in no sense a threat to freedom of speech or freedom of opinion. It is only, hopefully, a threat to those who really do wish us ill and would like, in fact, to threaten the security of our country. Thank you. Mr. Arthur Miller. Uh, <clears throat> when I uh, was phoned, asked to come to this uh, discussion, I wondered what exactly we were going to talk about. And uh, I was interviewed this afternoon by a Chinese scholar who was uh, writing a book about my plays. And one element in the book was uh, the relationship of the Cultural Revolution to the Crucible. And I said, uh, well, how does that work? <laughs> and he, he started to explain it to me. And uh, I listened. And then he said, uh, can I see you later tonight? Because I had to leave. And I said, I'm afraid not. I'm going to a meeting, though, which is uh, reminiscent of what I think you're talking about. Because people now are agitated agitated about the return the revival of McCarthyism. <coughs> and I said, there are some people, and then I started to try to project what this meeting would be like to him, and I made as much sense to him <laughs> as he had made to me. And I prefer, if I'm going to say anything, to be concrete. Uh, in, since Mr. Brownfeld spoke last, I remember him best. <laughs> and <laughs> I am sure that the Russians are behind a lot of mischief. I know that from personal experience, and I, I don't think we have to argue about that. But I don't believe that a congressional committee is the place uh, to attempt to uh, throw any light on this, and for a particular reason. You know, Congress by virtue of the tortuous sufferings of the 50s under the McCarthyite cloud, finally, it was finally decided by the law courts that Congress could not bring before its committees somebody 
whose information would not contribute directly to legislation. Now, uh, I happen to be one of those who helped, whose case helped to create this rule. And incidentally, that's one of the reasons why I took the position that I did. Now, if I'm not mistaken, if you're going to deal with journalists and their malfeasances, uh, you are scraping up against the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. And I think you are inevitably going to create a new impulse on the part of Congress to stake out a territory in which it can indeed question people about sources, about their opinions, and how they came by those opinions. Now, I suggest a remedy which is different. If you believe that Writer X is indeed a paid agent or unpaid agent or an agent who the Soviet Union owes money to and didn't pay him, <laughs> or whatever, then I think you should arrest the son of a bitch. And I don't think that the place to have a, an expedition into the man's mind is in the Congress. And I have another reason why I don't like that. It's because I face these congressmen. And you are a journalist, and we are all people of letters to one degree or another. And you know, as well as I do, that most people do not understand how anything is written. And most congressmen understand even less than that. <laughs> I had a congressman actually ask me, <coughs> under oath, with great indignation, he was represented the Cincinnati district. Do you mean to tell me, Mr. Miller, that you believe a man has the right to write a poem about anything? <coughs> now, that's real life. <laughs> and when I said yes, he turned to the other members of the committee, threw up his hands as though to say, what the hell are we asking this guy any more questions for? <laughs> now, that's actuality. And when you start talking about another committee, which God forbid is going to look for even worse than communists, who after all we all know were just a lot of intellectuals. <coughs> but these guys are terrorists with bombs. My God, every half-assed, incompetent, miseducated congressman is going to vie to get on that committee. He'll never be defeated. He's against bomb throwers. How can you defeat a man like that? I'll tell you one more story, and I'm finished. I'm finished anyway, but I don't believe that the committee route equals a counter-terrorist action. Indeed, it may cover it up. If the Soviet Union is so clever as to get people to 
write the opposite of what they think, <laughs> what's going to prevent this guy from getting up in front of the committee and advocating Reagan's programs? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's an absurdity. McCarthy, as far as I am aware, I could be mistaken because it's a hundred years ago now and I don't remember it that well, but I don't think he ever uncovered a spy. Now, spies were uncovered, as we all know. Um, Colonel Abel in Brooklyn ended up being traded for a whole army of our spies. And <laughs> because he apparently was really good. <laughs> but uh, that is, this is laughable. We're never going to catch these guys that way. I think the problem is probably, and I'm no cop, I don't understand these things really in detail, but I, I should add first that we are the least terrorized society that I know about as you yourself said a few minutes ago, we are not bothered by terrorism to the degree that any country, including Great Britain, which is usually thought of as an orderly society, is bothered. Uh, maybe Sweden, places like that where they never wake up. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> I, I think that the, the congressional route to me is anathema. It's not their function. They don't know how to do it. Half of them are failed lawyers who, who couldn't get jobs as prosecutors. It's just sheer incompetence. <laughs> That's out. But there should be, I agree, there should be a police effort to track these fellows down. Apparently, either they've done a good job in this country or we're not interesting to terrorists for some reason, so far, excepting for people occasionally the Puerto Ricans blow up something. We know why that happens. Uh, and I doubt strongly that in the congressional investigation, since that's a concrete instance of terrorism, of them would get you very far. I mean, probably the guy would stand up and say, I am a terrorist, I'm proud of it, and I'm going to blow up the United States. That's what they did when they tried to shoot out the Congress when Truman was president. And they all made speeches afterwards. The, the terrorist is not a communist. This is a misconception. Communists were part of a quasi-secret organization. Terrorists are proud of their identification once they're caught. In general, if you look back at the terrorists who shot the czars and the terrorists who shot the, the uh, Archduke that started World War I, etc. These people were, were inspired people. Uh, you have to face that. They, they thought they were really hot stuff. Uh, I have to say that listening to the, us here, and I, I think we all agree with each other to an amazing degree, which makes me feel that we haven't got the issue yet. Uh, but I do think that each of us shares in, in one thing. It's, it's what holds this country together, as a producer I used to have said, 
He said the, the thing that holds the United States together is that in this country, everybody thinks he's being persecuted. <laughs> the rich, the poor, the black, the white, we're all in trouble. And on this panel, we have all evidenced some feeling that we're being unfairly treated. I don't feel that way. <laughs> I, I feel uh, I'm an exception to this rule because I think this is the freest country that ever existed. And I think the one thing that will mar it, that could conceivably start that sweater unraveling, is to give the Congress, which is barely capable of writing legislation that's legible, the power over human beings that you are implying. This should be done if it's done in a court, under terrifically strict procedures, because you're dealing with ideas. There's no way out of this. A journalist deals in ideas. You cannot get around it. And if that is the case, then you got your proofs are harder to come by, but that's the way the game is played. They're harder to come by. And uh, I would hang in there with the legal system. Don't. See, the, the Congressional Committee always attempts to make an end run around this little quibble or that one, like when I was there, you couldn't talk to your lawyer. Why? Because you weren't accused of anything. <laughs> you were just a citizen who happened to get a subpoena and happened to be sitting there because it was Thursday. <laughs> and uh, they happened to be there too. And uh, you didn't need to talk to a lawyer. It's precisely what they did in 1692 in Salem. I have the line in the crucible. The pure in heart need no lawyers. So if you needed a lawyer, or you had to talk to him, it meant you were concealing something. And this is, really, it's a horror. Don't re-invoke it. Whatever you do, whatever your political opinion is, put that away. It's devilish. It can only lead to narrowing the glory of this country, really, which is its freedom. <laughs> Matt Hentoff's already spoken, uh, so I'm going to give him a chance. <laughs> anyway, Matt. All right. As a footnote to that, uh, in response to Mr. Brownfeld's rather Panglossian view that we have nothing to fear being pure in heart uh, and not terrorists, uh, from the Subcommittee on Terrorism and Internal Security, you may have forgotten that the only news, I use quotes around news, that came out of Denton's first hearing that was played as news was that that Dostoevsky of our time, Anod Borshkrav, testified that mobilizations for survival had within its umbrella an organization that was under the control of the Soviet Union. That wasn't investigating actions. That wasn't even investigating beliefs. That was, to use a dignified word, emphasizing rumor. And that's how they started. They haven't even warmed up yet. Um, 
I will stipulate, in terms of what Ms. Dector said, that there is indeed, whatever you want to call it, disinformation, lying McCarthyism on the left. And there is just as much disinclination to criticize it and correct it on the left as there is on the right. I do not agree with Midge that it's predominantly on the left. Maybe we, we read different publications. Um, for example, I do not find Irving Kristol an amusing name. I don't find him amusing. And I think uh, he, if anything, is, a, is an epitome or a, or a paradigm of the kind of danger you get from disinformation. But since Midge gave some examples, I just want to give one, just to be ecumenical about it. I call this disinformation. It also fits, by my definition, her definition of McCarthyism. Or maybe you just want to call it, again using her words, nasty, ugly journalism. There was a piece in the New York Times by Josh Moravchek on the Institute for Policy Studies. I'm not going to dissect it here because it's been done. R.A. Nyer, in the May 30th, 1981 issue, why do I say 1981? In the May 30th issue of The Nation, has, I think, the classic analysis so far of this kind of disinformation. It is, as they used to say in my neighborhood, a shunda to the New York Times. It is much worse in terms of what it tells you about the Times, at least the Sunday Magazine, and that's under the Times as a whole, than anything Janet Cook did at the Washington Post because this is institutional. Uh, finally, in terms of where we are now, where we're going, I'm a little worried that I generally share the view here that we are not in any immediate or even midterm or maybe even long-term danger of McCarthyism in that traditional sense coming back. I think, though, that, that if that is true, it is true only of certain classes of people, genres of people, if you like. I don't think, for example, there is as much fear um, of an age to have remembered the 50s when people, what I remember most oddly enough, are people in my neighborhood, which was a Jewish neighborhood in Boston. These people were not radicals by any means. They, they were FDR Democrats. Uh, and they would come home bearing magazines inside other magazines. That's, that, that, to me, is the essence of what that period was about. I think that is not likely to happen. On the other hand, and Vic Navasky alluded to this, what is already going on out there among a lot of people who do not have the clout that journalists have or members of the ACLU is that those who, because they feel they were validated by the last election, accurately or not, they feel that and they're, and, they're, and they're working toward that goal. Those who are in positions of public employment, I mean librarians and school teachers, who are now under great pressure to conform to mandated norms of correct thinking in what they teach and in the books they select, they're having it now. They're having what is to them just as fearful, just as terrifying as McCarthyism was to lots more people in the, in the 50s. I'll close with one small example. There's a place outside of um, Madison, Wisconsin called Montello, very small town. And they had a library raid by a group called Concerned Citizens. Oh, about two months ago, they snatched up all the usual suspects, Catcher in the Rye and 
whatever. And there was um, an election for the school board last week. And the teachers had organized, and the librarians had organized, and the, the libertarian folk with a small L in town had organized, and they, they beat the people from the concerned uh, parents uh, by a three-to-one margin. And you would think then that all is now okay for the First Amendment and freedom of speech and whatever in that town. I got a letter from a friend of mine who teaches in the high school. She said, everybody in the faculty, with very few exceptions, are running scared. One teacher is taping her classes so that if anybody accuses her of having said something, it's like Salem, except they didn't have the tape recorder there. She can say, look, this is what I said. People are not in the library, are not ordering books that might be controversial, that might have profanity in them. So in that town, Montello, and I don't think it's unique, that part of the chill is really here now. You have sat here as only an audience uh, in this city would. Uh, without air conditioning, used to oppression. Uh, it's almost 10 o'clock in a panel that uh, six people have spoken. I had thought that we would have five minutes each. We were to have started at 8, which is also New York City time. Um, what I thought we would do, rather than to give people on the panel a chance at this point to respond, is to give some people in the audience, particularly those who were previously asked to come here as so-called respondents to come up to the microphone, either ask a question, make a comment. I would simply ask that it be brief, and then open it to the panel to discuss it, and then uh, open it to other people in the audience to uh, open up the uh, discussion a bit. I can only say that uh, looking around here as the, as the fans move, it reminds me of uh, Dayton, Tennessee in 1925. <laughs> I'm not sure whether I'm Darrow or Brian, but, but how you all stay here, I don't know. Mr. Lewis. Could, could I ask you each, uh, when you speak, if you have some organizational affiliation, to please identify yourself via the organization as well. Uh, Mr. Chairman, my name is Marx Lewis. I'm chairman of the Council for the Defense of Freedom, which publishes a weekly newspaper in Washington called the Washington Inquirer. I'd like to say at the outset that I've been for many years a trade union official. I was also uh, for a time, uh, for many years, brought up as a member and active leader in the Socialist Party. So I've always been a very strong advocate of freedom of expression. I know that in the years when I strongly advocated a socialist society, that it was unpopular. But I, nobody questioned my right to preach that doctrine. And I was defended if I was ever attacked by the police in my expression of my views. Mr. Miller has said that we're dealing here with the ideas, with ideas. I think the issue goes far beyond that. I believe, for example, that an idea whose time has come cannot be stopped. I do not believe, though, that communism is an idea whose time has come. It has been imposed 
on three-fourths of the world's population and covers one-fourth of the world's land surface. It wasn't because the people who are now living under communist rule ever chose communism. It was imposed by minorities who first started by ter terrorism. Uh, uh, no, no. no comments are permitted. Please go on. By terrorism, uh, guerrilla warfare, subversion. I know from experience how this thing works. As a trade union official, I know how they try to infiltrate our union. They finally defeated them. But the same methods have been used to try to infiltrate, and very successfully, mass membership organizations. If it was purely a question of ideas, I would have no objection to the complete and free expression by communists of their views. But it's their attempt to impose, not by discussion, not by conviction, but by force, their views on other nations. Now, I, the question here has been very largely one of disinformation. I'm not prepared now to say to how much disinformation there is, but I do know that the basic philosophy of communism, as laid down by Lenin, was that a communist, to achieve his objectives, should lie, cheat, crawl on his belly if necessary, to achieve his objective. If it was purely a question of advocacy, I would have no objection to it. It's their attempt to impose their regimes and their tyrannical rule on other countries. Now, if they engage in this information, that's a rather mild form of the philosophy that they advocate. They believe in terrorism, not individual acts of assassination. Lenin made it clear that he doesn't do that. He doesn't favor that. But they create what they call a revolutionary situation, which makes it right to take over a country. Mr. Lewis, I do have to get back to the panel in a moment. C could yeah. you sum up and uh, finish your yeah. thought, please? Well, uh, I, I will. I'm sorry to cut you off. Yeah. Well, it's all right. I know others want to speak. So that it's not a problem of advocacy not a problem of freedom of ideas, but what small minorities can do. The communists in this country say, what do you fear us? There are only 10,000, but there were only five or 6,000 that took over Rhodesia and saw the Marxist president. There were only a few thousand who took over Cuba. There are only a few 17. thousand who <laughs> took over Nicaragua. So I say that the issue is not primarily uh, the freedom of ideas, which I favor and which I would support even for the communists, but <coughs> whether their ideas can be imposed on unwilling people as they have already done. Thank you, Mr. Lewis. <laughs> Anyone else of the respondents, uh, so to speak? I, as a lawyer, I have to tell you that a respondent is not always a good thing to be, but uh, we have some people in the front row who we have asked to speak. Yes.
it's better than what we were told we were when we were invited, which was Target. Yes, uh, my name identify. is Bill Schapp. I'm one of the co-editors of the Covert Action Information Bulletin. I want to make a couple of observations and then ask a question. One observation is that when uh, Ms. Dector accuses uh, people of very loosely and inaccurately calling other people CIA, particularly on the left, uh, I should point out that we try to do that very carefully and very accurately. The government and the director of the CIA have admitted that we are accurate, and for taking pains to follow her advice and be accurate, we are now the subject of a law to ban our magazine, which I'll get back to in a moment. The second comment is if Ms. Dector thinks that guilt by association is a weapon primarily of the left these days. She has not read the newspaper of the man sitting on her left and the man sitting on my left, uh, the Washington Enquirer, which I think is one of the sleaziest examples of guilt by association making the rounds today. Finally, I want to say something about all this talk about Soviet uh, disinformation, particularly about the fact that very few specific examples have been given uh, other than a mention of one Vietnamese journalist, perhaps. Uh, I think uh, Czech defectors who say there are all kinds of newspapers under control and all kinds of journalists under control and don't name them, and 60 cents, or is it 75 cents, will get you a ride on the subway in this town today. I think, uh, as we do in our magazine, you have to name names, and in that context, I want to point out that it was my impression, and I thought it was confirmed by the Church Committee, that the major instrumentality of disinformation in the world today was the CIA and not the Soviet Union. At the time, this was back in 75, the Church Committee confirmed that there were well over 250 media operations wholly owned by the CIA, not influenced, but wholly owned, like Forum World Features, a feature news service in England, like the Rome Daily American in, uh, in Rome like uh, reporters and editors on papers where stories have come out and the names have been named. The CIA had an agent inside the editorial board of the Japan Times, and when they decided they wanted an editorial in it, the CIA typed it, they delivered it the next day, and it appeared the following day in the paper. John Stockwell writes in his book about how the disinformation about Angola was planted every day, the most glaring example being the story of Cuban troops raping Angolan women's in Angola, it was only three years later in page 99 that those front page stories were discovered and admitted to be complete fabrications of his staff of writers in the CIA station in Kinshasa. Finally, I want to go back to my first point and ask a question for the, the panelists when it comes to that, and that's that I would like to know what they think about a particular aspect of the so-called Agent Identities Protection Act, the bill ostensibly to ban our magazine, but in our opinion, to do a great deal more damage to the press in this country. And that is putting aside the question of people who were foreign, uh, former U.S. agents, putting aside the question of people who had authorized access to classified information, and putting aside the question of classified information themselves, do they believe it is proper for a law to do, as the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee admitted, to criminalize the publication by private citizens 
of unclassified information obtained from unclassified sources. Because that's how we get our names and that's how we name them, and they want to make it illegal. And I don't even think the New York Times and the Washington Post and everyone else realizes that they do the same thing. Well, it seems to me it's not only improper or impermissible, it's, damn, it's downright unconstitutional. And I trust Floyd Abrams has begun to brief that case in case the law is passed. It's not a bill of attainder. I, I have testified uh, five or six times on that legislation. How is it uh, different than it? Because a bill of attainder is simply not what it's about at all. A bill of attainder, sure. A bill of attainder. It, it'll, it'll cost you, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a bill of attainder is legislation passed by Congress directed at a particular uh, entity which makes illegal what that entity has done in the past and which criminalizes it. Uh, and so uh, we have had one example in our history of that, and indeed to the extent that the legislation is peculiarly aimed at covert action, intelligent bulletin, which I may say I do not think serves the public good by what it does, in my view, uh, uh, it, it, they would have an argument that it's a bill of attainder. I think everyone else would have an argument uh, that it violates the First Amendment, uh, as Mr. Schapp quite rightly says, uh, by making illegal the publication of already public information from non-classified sources. Victor? Well, I was going to say it was aimed at covert action, but I, let me raise another question by your side comment. Later, I would like to be able to comment on something Mitch said, but uh, do you think it is useful uh, every time you are commenting on the constitutional rights of someone who is basically under attack in our republic today to disassociate yourself from their positions the way you did in the case of covert action? About no, and I don't. But uh, as long as Mr. Schaap is here and has made a speech about the benefit to the public as he views it of his publication, I thought my own First Amendment rights at least went far enough to respond. <laughs> they, they do. Uh, my suggestion is that th that's one of the things in the past that weakened and fragmented the ability of, of people who were targets to resist the repression that occurred. But you see, I don't view myself as part of a cause, Victor. I view myself as responding on my own behalf as best I can when I perceive First Amendment interests, including covert action bulletins, to be interfered with. But I don't consider myself part of a movement uh, to, to try to all stand together uh, and, and to refrain from speaking out, as I believe people in a democratic society should, when they disagree with others. Right. Uh, I've changed my mind. I would like uh, just to say, uh, uh, make a, s a bit of response here. Uh, I think the category of usefulness, uh, as it was used, that term, do you think it is useful, is a call to close ranks. Uh, the call to close ranks is uh, every bit as dangerous as it has been helpful. Uh, I don't think that when we are discussing delicate issues, uh, the demand that one close ranks, uh, uh, that, is a, that is, again, is an attempt to interdict dissent and discussion, that uh, demand. It's not, uh, it's not a legal demand, but it is a spiritual demand. Uh, and as such, I think it is very bad. I have no particular interest in criminalizing 
your publication. I think if we had a healthy and, in fact, uninterdicted intellectual life going on, I would like to see your publication remain legal because I would like to see, I would like to attack it. I would like to attack it in print. You can attack me back. I would like the, I would, I think it is time for people who are opposed to things, and there are many, many people, I dare say even in this room, who are opposed to many things, someone has suggested it would not be useful for them to speak up about, uh, to speak up. And uh, I, I think there really are two issues here. There have been two issues going here all along, as Arthur Miller pointed out. One is the police question, um, and that is a question uh, that I, I don't know, I'm not sure, as I say, that democratic societies have really figured out how to deal with the police question. At least they struggle with it. And the other is what Arthur Miller calls the intellectual question. And that has been the responsibility of all the people in this room and myself and many, many others. Uh, and it is a responsibility that has been failed. I would say not by me, <laughs> I would say by a very large number of you uh, because I notice um, um, that there has been very, very little plurality and complication of debate. Uh, and uh, the, everything gets polarized on account of the question is, is it useful at this moment to criticize someone when someone else might be criticizing him? Now, we have had enough interdiction of discussion to last us for a very long time. I won't interdict you, you don't interdict Lloyd Abrams, Floyd Abrams, and you don't interdict me. Uh, uh, you can't do it anymore. But this notion that we've got to close ranks, it was, a, it was something that affected the black community, uh, the black movement, it was something that affected the women's movement, I dare say it is something that affects the gay rights movement, and I think it is uh, intellectually about one of the most harmful, deleterious, and dangerous things that we can do, is to accept that notion. And I beg you all not to. I just like... I, I think that the... Uh, the position that Mr. Schaap is taking is open to a serious question on a number, on a number of grounds. Uh, Justice Goldberg said that the Constitution is, after all, not a suicide pact. Every society has a right to defend itself. Every society has a right to expect those it employs in its top secret positions to keep secrets they have agreed to keep or suffer the legal penalties. I do not believe that any American has the right to divulge to the enemy the names of those in his government's employ. We know that as a result of what such publications as Covert Action have done, and not just Covert Action, but Counter Spy and, and a group of others, 
at least three Americans have been murdered. One in Greece, two in El Salvador. These were people named in these publications. I don't say that it was the purpose of naming those names to have them killed. I don't impute those motives. The motives may be very fine indeed. When we argue that freedom of speech means the right to give to the enemy of one's country the names of those in its government employ, I think that the Congress must act and pass legislation stating that this is not the case. Victor? Yeah, I um, have to admit to some confusion. Be I have to admit to some confusion uh, because uh, I think I misunderstood everything that Ms. Detter said in the first half of her remarks. As I s understood them, they were that uh, a terrible thing was happening in this country. The left was uh, preventing people from speaking out on things that they cared about by calling them McCarthyite, and we should do away with that labeling. The second half of your remarks, Major, as I understood them, were to accuse two writers of the nation of McCarthyism. And uh, in one of, one of the uh, writers is in the room. He may want to speak up for himself or not. But it seems to me that there's a fundamental contradiction in that position. And when I uh, ask what I th think of as an interesting question to me, uh, is it useful for people, a group of people, who are in a position where they have reason to believe that they are going to be called before uh, congressional committees and interrogated about their political beliefs, is it useful for those people or others who associate themselves with democratic values to disassociate oneself <laughs> from, from those particular beliefs? I think that's a legitimate question for discussion. And as I understand it, you are telling me it is not useful for me to raise the question of whether it's useful. I call that interdiction. I'm sorry. I hate to turn this into a Victor Navasky, Midge Dector squabble. But what you said to Floyd Abrams, I understand English. I may not understand anything else. And I understand the implications of discourse. And what you said to Floyd Abrams is that he was, that is he was. Is it useful? Right. Is it useful? By which you meant, are you damaging the cause by taking a view, uh, by, uh, are you damaging uh, the cause exact, by expressing? That's right. I meant to ask the question whether it is useful or whether it damages the cause of resistance. I didn't mean to tell him not to say it. I meant to ask that question uh, because my study of the 50s says to me that it was very harmful to both the victims of that period and the possibilities of resistance for everybody who wanted to defend the rights of targets of the congressional investigating committees to have to go through the ritual of disassociating themselves from the positions of the people who were called up there. Well, that's that very is simple. why I am against that's a, that's a very simple subject for discussion. That's why I'm against congressional investigating committees. But we are having public debate and discussion 
Uh, and we are people who engage, you and I, and a lot of people in this room are people who make a living engaging in public discourse. Uh, and if there were no congressional committees, then it would seem to me uh, that, uh, that uh, we ought to be engaging in public discourse, which is supposed to meet uh, criteria of discourse and not of political convenience or advantage. As the victim of Victor's slander, <laughs> let me say that I forgive him. <laughs> but he did mean what he said, and I am not part of his cause. I have my own. Yes, sir. Uh, you, you had a question or a comment? Yeah. Sure. I'm Phil Marcus. I direct an educational foundation in New York. I came here with Midge tonight wondering what kind of debate we would have with a group of writers about a citizen, being a citizen and being a writer. It's still a fantastic uh, discussion. Part of what I hear going on is that there is no conflict. Uh, that's true so long as everybody wants to declare themselves an independent nation. That's not what's being talked about. Arthur Miller was exactly right. I'm not sure how we begin to make a political question out of that, but I came here wondering uh, precisely about the political consequences of the statement that Arthur Miller made. The Congress will do it, or the writers will do it. The writers are going to do it. Somebody's going to have to get arrested. Names will have to be named. That takes a political consciousness amongst writers who are interested in writing about political things. But I don't hear anybody talking about that. I'm sorry, I, I missed a, a premise. Why, why does someone have to get arrested if writers are going to do it? Well, maybe I, I knew I was alone, but I thought maybe we had established the assumption that there are, as the saying goes, real toads in the world. There are dangerous people. Uh, there are terrorists, uh, there are communists, uh, there are people of other political persuasions. They do nasty and dangerous things that infringe upon our civil liberties, that endanger our decent politics. Well, wait, if this group me, is going to exempt itself from serious, deliberate I, political discussion, yeah, then it's you, just inviting uh, a more extreme political response. Yeah, but are you saying then that the writer's role is to finger certain people? I think the writing community must attend to its own responsibilities, and if that means fingering people for doing such particular things that can be documented, that can be proved in law, What yes. sorts of things? What sorts of things are you talking about? What sorts of things are you talking about? CIA again. All right, let's say... There's one, of, there's one of two choices then. All right, if there is no disinformation, if it's inconceivable that somebody could be taking KGB money, it's not loaded. If it's inconceivable that somebody could be taking KGB money, or if it's inconceivable to talk about that, then people are talking about things that seem to the political elected leaders of this country uh, to pose a serious question. What's disturbing me is the assumption that there is no serious question for them to be considering. But I'm saying that there is. Yes. Thank you. 
My name is Sean Gervasi. I'm not now, but uh, have been a consultant to UNESCO on the question of the relations <laughs> between intelligence agencies and the media. And I think that this is really uh, a very important question. It's not being discussed at all seriously. It bears on the question of disinformation and our whole historical experience in a sense with this issue has led to the present moment and indeed to the kinds of confusion which seem to me to prevail in this discussion. I agree with Arthur Miller, who didn't quite say it this way, but this is a bit like having Hamlet without the prince because the background of this discussion tonight is 35 years of institutionalized, lying to the public, manipulation and deception of the public. I would have to disagree with one of the main points made in yesterday's <laughs> Sunday Times article that the Pentagon Papers case brought to an end an era of press collaboration with the government. I don't think that's true at all, and I think that a careful historical analysis of publicly available documentation makes very clear what the problem is and why we're confronted with it particularly now. We have to remember that in the period when the Central Intelligence Agency was created, a system of systematic manipulation of public opinion across the whole world was put in place, that this system functioned by sending directions from the Central Intelligence Agency to place false, fabricated, misleading, or distorted information through assets in the media, that is to say, through owned news organizations or through individuals who were either paid CIA officers or contract agents into the world press for the manipulation of opinion for particular political purposes. Now, you can't have that kind of system go on. And by the way, I think the simplest and clearest documentation is in Carl Bernstein's article in October 1977 in Rolling Stone and the three articles in the New York Times beginning Christmas Day, 1977. Front page stuff. It's all there, or half of it is there. And Bernstein also explains why the church committee didn't really come out with it. We are now paying the piper for having a system of such poisonous capacity function in our society. Now, disinformation is what was perfected by that machinery and it is now being introduced into American political life in a way that it was never introduced before because this society is in crisis and because this is a weapon which can be used. And we have to guard against it very, very seriously. Now, when Midge Dechter talks about free argumentation, I have to laugh because in a political climate which is influenced so profoundly by the constraints placed upon it by this kind of manipulation, we don't have the kind of freedom, and everybody has said that, that we have in many other Western societies even. Look, the Central Intelligence Agency is the largest news agency in the world today, okay? And they define the climate of opinion. By UNESCO estimates in 1978, they were spending almost $300 million a year. They had 1,000 men in the field. They had 2,000 people at Langley and in other places in the United States manufacturing lies into reality. I think the simplest way to illustrate, finally, what disinformation really comes down to and how it's beginning to affect us is by telling you a simple story about a radio debate that took place in a station in Chicago in which a, my brother, actually, was debating Danny Graham 
who was for 11 years head of the Defense, Defense Intelligence Agency. And Graham said, my brother cited some statistics, and Graham said, well, that comes from this, the uh, Center for Defense Information. That's associated with that commie outfit, IPS. And my brother said, well, uh, since when is the IPS a commie outfit? And Danny Graham said, it's all in the spike. And my brother said, but that's a novel. Not to Danny Graham, that's the point. This is the frightening thing about disinformation used on such a systematic scale. It's not simply lying, I think it goes beyond that. It's calculated inversion of the truth. It now takes place on a massive scale in our society. It's exceedingly dangerous, and I hope that Penn will continue to discuss the central problem which really needs to be discussed here. My name is William Kunzer, and I just want to make one observation or two and do it briefly. Uh, I agree with Ms. Dector that distinctions are blurred in our society. There is no question about that. And I think that that was also said by Mr. Brownfeld when he said there's a distinction between belief and action. The problem of history with congressional committees has been that those distinctions are always blurred. And when they're blurred, soon the word terrorist becomes communist, communist becomes socialist, socialist becomes labor union, and so on. And the blurring of those distinctions is inevitable in the kind of political world we live. So any attempt to do this through a congressional means will result in the blurring of any distinction. It will be one that will be meaningless. Santayana said, I believe, a, if I'm not misquoting him, a people who have forgotten the errors of their past are doomed to repeat them. And I suspect that really what Ms. Dector is doing in many ways in talking about these distinctions is in maybe a subconscious way to pave the way to something that she thinks can make those distinctions quite clear in its operation, whether it be a congressional committee or otherwise. Mr. Brownfell is not so subtle. He wants a congressional committee which can make the distinction between belief and, belief and action to function. But I remember hearing Joseph McCarthy state, I do, not need, I do not seek to pillory all Americans, he said, only those who are un-American. And that's essentially what happens. And I want to just point out one example of disinformation. Mr. Brownfell referred to the Greensboro tragedy of several years ago as a shootout in Greensboro. He chose the word shootout to mean two forces, the Nazi and the Klan on one side and the Communist Workers' Party on the other just shot each other out at the old corral. What the film showed clearly was that only the police fired, uh, the Klan fired. The film showed <laughs> That was a good Freudian slip, and though unintentional, I accept it. Uh, because the trial proved that coming down to Greensboro with the Nazis and the Klan 
was a member of the FBI, Mr. Bukovic, and that the police absented themselves from the area totally to make the so-called shootout occur. What is the shootout was the picture of 14 men opening the trunks of their cars, pulling out weapons, and murdering five people and wounding others. There isn't a single instance of any Klansman or Nazi being shot, or in essence even shot at. There were two shots fired eventually by someone in the CWP. This is in the trial record and in the films. So the word disinformation has many meanings. Mr. Brownfell can call it a shootout in Greensboro. And I don't call him a liar. I just call him a disinformer. Thank you. Excuse me. Uh, I think that's a very interest, interesting way not to address the point. Uh, the point was that two extreme groups in North Carolina, the Nazis and the Klan and the Communists, <coughs> engaged in a violent altercation. I am not discussing the merits or demerits of either group or who fired first. But that's not my point. I agree. I agree with your discussion of, of how it happened and what took place. That doesn't alter my, my, my point is that our country is faced with the rapid growth of radical organizations on the right and the left, yet we have no apparatus which is paying attention to them and trying to stop them. And I'd just like to make one point that Arthur Miller touched on earlier that I think is relevant to what you've said. And that is something concrete. Now, in July of 1964, as the result of the infiltration of a radical organization by the intelligence unit of the New York City Police Department, which planned to blow up the Statue of Liberty, the Liberty Bell, and the Washington Monument, four men were apprehended were arrested. These men had received training in Cuba from North Vietnamese and Viet Cong officers. This violence was averted. That was 1964. Today, we have no intelligence units which are performing that kind of function. This is concrete. I would this be, is something listen, real. I would be very grateful if you have that information, if you would send it to me. New York Daily News, July 9, oh, 1964. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I, I would that, like to add, oh, I would like to add just one word in response to you. Mr. Kunstler, the reason that I pray that there be no congressional investigations, because if there were, and you were the subject of one, and you might be, I would then... What, what the hell are you hissing about? What I'm saying is true, and everybody knows it's true. If there were, uh, aren't you, aren't you, uh, weren't we talking about um, the, the crudity and the injustice of these things? If you were, then I would have to uh, <clears throat> join in some important capacity in your defense. And I hope there are no investigations because I would far rather that we lived in a climate in which I could do what I would really want to do, 
which is write a book about you that would make you extremely unhappy and perhaps embarrass you. Uh, just a minute. Uh, I just want to tell you. That's what I mean by intellectual life. What I like to do is, is to go about another 15 or 20 minutes, and then we can all chat outside at a wine reception. First, just one second before, Mr. Raskin, I've been holding off a long time, and, and then, then it's your turn. I think there are, there are a number of different sorts of questions which, uh, which have been raised. I think, first of all, Gervasi is absolutely right that one has to take a look at the structure, the operation of the CIA in terms of the development of disinformation over a 35-year period. Second of all, it's very important to understand that there are certain rules of international law which I wish the United States would keep to even if the Soviet Union does not. And those rules do happen to relate to uh, not having uh, covert activities, which in fact are violations of other countries' laws. Uh, and it seems to me that the more we are able to understand that we could live in terms of an international law and control our own actions, it is not inconceivable that that could be exemplary behavior for others. And we could begin to think in those terms. Another point, there is such a thing as terrorism of the center, not only of the right and the left, and that is state terrorism. And it comes down in very different ways. In terms of the Institute for Policy Studies, it came down through Pinochet with the murder of two of my colleagues. So it's not, you know, it's not something which I say lightly. It's something that we understand directly. Now, in terms of you know, more specific points about uh, disinformation, I think we've got to distinguish between sloppy journalism and foolish statements. Uh, and indeed the attempt to entrap or destroy. I'll give you one example of sloppy journalism and foolish statements since it was aimed at me. Uh, Bill Buckley uh, uh, had uh, a column about me and, uh, uh, in April in which he compared me to Goebbels and uh, in which he said that I had gone to Vietnam when I had not. And he put, somehow put those two things together. Now I would say that this is an example of uh, indeed sloppy journalism and uh, it's not because uh, uh, he's anything but a sloppy journalist and should be seen in my view in, in those terms. And finally I think that there is an undertone which is very very deeply distressing as I hear it now uh, and I didn't quite understand it at first uh, by uh, Ms. Dechter and uh, the two other people who spoke. Uh, in, a, in a sense, not so much Mr. Bromfield, but Mr. Marcus and, and Ms. Dechter, which is very greatly disturbing. Both know very clearly that we live in a situation where Congress and a, an extreme right-wing government is in control. And that when it's the case that books are written and novels are written for the specific purpose of uh, indeed attempting to destroy individuals, that that is going to be something that will be used by the state apparatus. We are not naive, and we should understand that fact. And when it is that Vic Navasky says to Floyd Abrams, look, is it not the case that uh, you should be over here somehow understanding that 
Floyd Abrams shouldn't withdraw and shouldn't be so frightened. There is a First Amendment, which indeed should be protected, but there also is a state apparatus that has to be confronted. And, <clears throat> just one, one point of somebody else's personal privilege. I mean, that really is outrageous. That is outrageous. I think the point that Midge made is exactly correct, that if Floyd has any credibility at all, forget Floyd as a lawyer. Floyd is it himself. It's because he doesn't join the... The, he doesn't unify if he doesn't feel like it at the time. He, not, does not, he does not think covert action is, he will defend it. For God's sakes, he was the most useful guy who testified on its behalf and against that bill last year. But to, to make him some kind of weak, timorous person is crazy. Excuse me, I'm not saying, I'm not saying in any way that, uh, that he is either a weak or a timorous person. He's obviously quite the reverse, if you would dare to say what he said tonight. It so, takes that much courage. Right, but there is, there is another point. In the history, in the history of, of the 20th century, in terms of the liberal position uh, with regard to defenses of individuals, the view was to take always an arm's length relationship to those people. And that arm's length relationship finally redounded not to the, to the poor situation that those people were in, but to liberalism itself, because liberalism itself turned out to be contentless. And that's the danger that we now face. The fact of the matter is that liberalism itself must be predicated on content. And that, it seems to me, is what has to be, in this sense, confronted, you know, indeed, by Floyd Abrams and by others it's, of us who call ourselves it's liberals. It's predicated on using your own cup and keeping your own integrity. Yes, sir. the First Amendment. What we are saying, and what I am saying here, is that certain books, in fact, are related to government action. And that can't be denied. The fact of the matter is that you don't sit only as the individual novelist. You sit as someone who indeed represents power in this society and has very deep connections into the Reagan administration. You are not alone in this sense. You are not sitting up someplace up in Connecticut. And that fact of the matter then relates the two together. Uh, yes, ma'am. That's what I call a dumbass. My name is Sylvia Crane. And um, I was a founder of the movement to abolish the House Un-American Activities Committee. I was a long-time lobbyist. Thank you. I was a long-time lobbyist about that committee. And um, I sort of gathered um, over 13 years of doing battle as an activist, I gathered a fund of information that I'd like to share with all of you. Um, one of them was my is my recollection of the minority decision in the Wilkinson-Braden case in 61, February 27th. Wow. Right. It was a stellar decision because the adverse decision on Wilkinson and Braden, which sent them to jail for contempt of Congress for one year, hung on Justice Felix <laughs> Frankfurter's balancing doctrine, which I would like Mr. Brownlee to Brownfield to pay some attention to, because it said that if you balance our First Amendment liberties against considerations of internal security, you have a government of men, not of laws, because who draws the line and where do you draw it? 
Therefore, said Justices Black and Douglas, the First Amendment erodes into a quibble. Now, also at the same time as abolishing the committee, I was doing my doctorate in American history and I absorbed something about political theory. And that's what's really being discussed here. We talk about the CIA as if it's just one thing, one entity. The CIA was set up in 1947 as an intelligence gathering agency and it was designed to do analysis. President Truman swore up and down the country it would never be allowed into domestic intelligence on American citizens. And nothing was said about its covert activities. So when we talk about the CIA, the criticism really levels itself against the covert activities. And where can anybody point to any clause in the Constitution which says that covert op uh, uh, operations are proper within a democratic society, which I define as an overt society, so that anything in American policy can be discussed by both the public and the Congress and the proper officials. And therefore, covert operations really are the beginnings of a police state. Now, there's one further distinction I want to help make here, and that is that I believe sincerely that the government may never make information for the people. The government officials must never lie but tell the truth. They must not break laws but operate legally. That's what went wrong in Watergate. Now we've got a whole slew of bills in the hoppers of each house of the Congress to legalize again what was considered a national scandal but very few years ago. And I'm surprised that our panelists didn't tell you about the bills that are lurking there. Not only do they want to uh, reconstitute an internal committee of the House and possibly another Senate subcommittee on subversive activities, as we had before. But there are bills about foreign agents which would allow for wiretaps on citizens. There are bills to reinstitute the um, uh, covert activities to break the guidelines that were put on after Watergate to stop the illegal activities of the covert actors within the CIA. They want to, this administration is dedicated, and the American Heritage Study said that they wanted to reinstitute surveillance, agence provocateur, illegal break-ins, and whatever. And they also wanted to give the FBI, to erase the FBI guidelines, which caused the FBI to become legal, they want to give them all these illegal powers again. And then um, our gentleman from Washington says that we haven't got enough police power. You've got everything in present law that you need to catch a foreign agent. Thank you very much. I've got to drive for the last 45 minutes. If you're as wise as I think you are, you're probably leaving. My name is uh, Alan Wolf, and I wrote the uh, article on Gene Kirkpatrick that uh, Ms. Dechter referred to. 
and I wanted to respond. First, I, I do not write and have never written for the Village Voice, so I wanted to say that I'm extremely glad that Alex Coburn is on this side of the Atlantic and not that side. I find him to be one of the most interesting writers in the United States, in part because of what he tells us about people and uh, their lives, which I think is relevant to understanding them. That includes you, Ms. Dector. It includes a lot of other people. Coburn, in my opinion, is fully within the standards of American journalism. He is not a Westbrook Pregler, Westbrook Pegler, excuse me, but is, an ex uh, but is a, 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 a journalist that uh, uh, I think ranks among the best in the United States. As far as the Kirkpatrick article is concerned, I would make a distinction here between disinformation and misinformation, between McCarthyism and what was a horrendous and terrible mistake about uh, the alleged brother-in-law of Gene Kirkpatrick. I did apologize in the nation. I do make mistakes. A number of journalists do. I would love to apologize anywhere you suggest. I would even be happy to apologize in commentary if it is proper to mention the magazine published by your husband. Gene uh, Kirkpatrick is someone who has been closely connected to the Central Intelligence Agency, both herself and her family, her husband. Now the question is, what do we as journalists do about that? Do we simply say when such a person who is an academic and claims to be judged by the standards of academia and then is appointed to be the ambassador to the United Nations, do we claim that such information should not be raised, should not be aired in public, that it is in fact irrelevant to that appointment? I do not believe that this is the case. I believe that such information is vital to understanding of what takes place in a democracy, and I raised it in my article, and I think a totally proper way, as I explained in the responses that you mentioned, in order to evaluate the qualifications of this person for high office. There is simply no alternative to raising these issues than not raising these issues, and it seems to me that not raising the issues would be far more serious an offense. We do, in fact, live in a cynical world of power, as has been pointed out. There is very little purity on any side of these matters. What I was trying to do in that article, Ms. Dector, was to do exactly what you suggested journalists should do, which is not to leave these things to congressional committees, but to debate it amongst ourselves. The difference between that and McCarthyism is, I think, at bottom, a difference of intent. McCarthy's intent was to silence people and to render meaningless the First Amendment. I had no intention whatsoever of silencing Jean Kirkpatrick, simply of discussing her qualifications for her post. I'm Michael Rautner. I'm an attorney with the Center for Constitutional Rights in New York. Uh, a couple of points, particularly on Ms. De what Ms. Dector said. One distinction I think she leaves out is she sort of equates these libels on the left with the libels on the right. And even assuming there are such things going on, and even assuming that the left has as much force in print as the right, what she leaves out of her equation entirely is government libels and institutional libels that are going on today. There's a series of, a series of institutions being established in the government, and there are serious libels being made by the highest officials. I mean, a couple of people know of many of them. One is Denton, the head of the Subcommittee on Security and Terrorism, circulating a letter to all members of Congress that IPS is a communist revolutionary organization and that senators ought to keep and make sure that their colleagues don't have anything to do with it. That's an institutional libel. That's very different than a private person 
doing something in, the, in print. Secondly, you have a thing like Mies, the highest counselor to the government, saying that because the ACLU is for prisoners' rights in some way, because they want better prison conditions, that they're a criminal lobby. Again, very different than having it in public print. Secondly, the concept of disinformation that she's using is quite narrow. It's a dictionary definition, but she forgets how the word is being used politically. It was being used by Senator Denton to say that the press made us lose the war in Vietnam, that we were on the verge of a victory, but because of Soviet disinformation that went to the press, the press said we were losing and therefore we lost. Well, that's absurd. It's being used the same way in El Salvador right now. There was a piece in the Times on Friday it mentioned the El Salvadorian general saying, there's no such thing as army abuses going on here. There's not killings of people going on in El Salvador by the army. It's Marxist disinformation. It's being used by Reagan the same way. He's saying that because the signs that were carried at the, at the demonstration in Washington were the same as the signs in Canada, that somehow that there's a conspiracy of people who are opposed to the position in El Salvador, and it's, and it's Marxist disinformation. Again and again, it's institutional. It's much broader than the definition that Ms. Dechter is giving. Second point on what Mr. Brownfeld is saying. First of all, the committee that's been set up is already investigating opinions. It was very interesting. What happened is the ACLU went before that committee and testified against the Intelligence Identities Protection Act, the act that Mr. Schaaf was talking about. What's the first thing that Senator Denton does? The ACLU says, we're in principle against this bill. It violates the First Amendment. First thing he says, he quotes Mr. Halpern from 1978, and he says, Mr. Halpern, isn't it true that in 1978 you said you were against covert activities of the CIA, implying and saying directly that isn't that the only reason you're against this bill? In other words, going to Mr. Halpern's opinions about the CIA rather than into his, his position on the First Amendment of the Constitution. Secondly, Mr. Brownfield tries to make a big issue about the Klan and the Nazis, that the Security and Terrorism Committee is going after the Klan, is going to go after the Nazis, and that the unleashing of the FBI is necessary to get the Klan. Well, let's talk about what the FBI did in 1974 and in the early 70s with the Klan. They infiltrated the Klan, and then what happened? You had a person like Richard Rowe blow up a Birmingham church, supposedly. You had, a, 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 you had an FBI agent infiltrate and the killing of Vi Viola Luisa by the FBI. No Klan people were arrested, but the FBI was in the Klan all the time, helping to perpetrate those violent acts. If you look back in the 50s, what the McCarthy Committee said, they said all the time, we're going to go after the Klan and the Nazis. But who did they go after? And who has Senator Denton gone after so far? He hasn't gone after the Klan and the Nazis. He has some hearing coming up on some form of terrorism. You think that's going to be the Klan and the Nazis? I don't think so. Finally, a group of people in New York have gotten together to resist all of these new laws and new institutions that are coming into place. It's a, it's a campaign. It's going across the country right now. It's called No More Witch Hunts. It's going on in New York on June 19th in front of the District 65 building right here. It's an all-day affair starting from 4 o'clock till about 10. And I think people should join it, should come to it. And it's a way of resisting a lot of the things that people on this panel are talking about today. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, you have, uh, this is a Johnny Carson line. I just won't call on anyone else. Uh, you've been an incredible audience. Uh, we really want to thank you all for coming. We will be serving wine inside for any of you that want to join us. Thank you all very much.
Thank you. 